0: As a fellow Stephen King lover, you will understand what I mean when I'm saying I'm having like a Stephen King like a moment where like I just want to read yeah. all the books, watch all the movies, read all the articles. So this week, my focus has been it. It has been an incredibly long It to-
1: has been. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. Uh-huh. It is here. It is listening. No, I'm just kidding. It's been a really long time since I've seen the original TV version with Tim Curry as Pennywise. And so I rewatched that one and then I watched it chapter one from a couple years ago. And okay. <laughs> so Tim Curry's Pennywise is a terrifying in its own right. Like absolutely horrifying. And the new one, it chapter one where Pennywise is played by Bill Skarsgård. Like it's it, obviously he, no- it looks, you can't even recognize him at all because of all the Pennywise makeup, but he's terrifying. It's so scary. I literally, it was one where I felt like I need to sleep with the light on.
1: So, um, I love Stephen King. I think he is my favorite author. I will say, I do think his books are hit or miss because sometimes you read a book and you're like, this is the best thing I've ever read. And then sometimes you read one and you're like, this, that was long.
0: Um, his books are long. I will, I mean, that is very true. Yeah
1: and it's it's his writing style and the thing is when it's enjoyable you love the long because it's so much detail and all that but um sometimes like i've tried reading uh pet cemetery i've never read it i've tried reading pet cemetery and it's just slow to start with i mean so are like all his books like i think christine is just like a boy getting a car For, like, 150 pages, and then it's like, oh, but the car kills people. BT dubs.
0: (laughs) And then it gets really good. Well, I will say, next on my list, I'm going to go see It Chapter 2, probably by myself in the theater, because I I laugh in the face of fear. Um, And then I'm going to read the book, which is definitely, like, as backwards in order you could possibly do it in, but I've had the book on my bookshelf forever. It's, like, the size of the Bible. It's huge. (laughs) Well,
1: (laughs) Fair. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, speaking of books, though, um, I just got, today, my copy of The Handmaid's Tale came in, and it's a book I've never read, love the series, do not love the movie that was made in, like, the late 80s or early 90s, whenever that was. Not a good one. Um, But just got the book, and if I ever have free time, I'm gonna read it one day. Do I have a book that I bought a year ago and still have not opened it because I don't have time to read? Yes. Yes. Bought it when I moved to Austin. I haven't opened it.
0: I have a lot of those. Um, one last thing I want to say about it is that can we just like talk for just a second about how hot Bill Hader is and how like I feel like people don't know this, but they need to know this.
1: Okay. I'm glad that's where you're going with this. Because um, I thought you were going to say, can, <laughs> can we talk about how hot, like, Bill Skarsgård as the clown is? Because that's apparently a thing of people wanting to fuck Pennywise, and I hate
0: it. That scares me more than every part of the book, like, times ten. So, um, yeah. thank you for the new set of nightmares you've now given me. I can't believe well, that's a thing. No,
1: uh, Bill hater.
0: okay. Okay, yeah, he plays Richie in Chapter 2. He's just really hot. Like, I feel like yeah. he's been, like, under the radar for a long time, but he's, like, he's funny, which to me is, like, number one characteristic. Okay? Make me laugh. He's tall. He has dark hair. That jawline, like, it could cut you. It's so sexy. I'm just saying,
1: Honestly, I really love him. He is- well, and he's also getting, becoming more of, like, a silver fox. He's Steve Carelling.
0: That's, what, That's I was, what he's doing. You literally took the words out of my mouth. I was about to say he's on that same level as Steve Carell with me, but he's younger because he's in like his forties, late thirties. Yeah, something like that. I
1: think forties.
0: But anyway, um, yeah. I just listeners, I feel like y'all are like me, like you would get this. Maybe I'm totally off. Maybe you're like Brittany. What? But seriously though, Bill Hader, very hot. If you haven't watched
1: Bill Hader, very hot. Pennywise, not hot. Pin- make Like, that is a distinction that must
0: be made. It must be made. Pennywise, not hot. Not where I'm going with this. I don't have a clown fantasy that is really scary. Like, that is scarier clown- than clowns. <laughs> clowns are scary in general. I
1: mean, I don't like clowns. They make me uncomfortable. I wouldn't go as far to say, like, I'm scared of clowns. Like, if I was I know, walking down the street and a clown... I would actually just be more confused if I was walking down the street <laughs> and a clown passed me. But if... I don't know if I was walking down the street and a children's birthday yard was happening in the front yard and there was a clown, I wouldn't be like, (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) but like, they make me uncomfortable. If a clown came up to me, yeah, I'd be weirded out. But I think it, my like fear being just more of an uncomfortable thing. uh, This just came to me. I think where it comes from is when I was a server at one particular restaurant we would have a clown come in and do balloon art for the tables and for the kids and the family. And um, I hated that clown <laughs> I mean, mostly because she was a bitch.
0: Okay, well, there's a reason. Um,
1: um, Like, it would be one of those, she'd be like,
0: hey, kids, you want a sword?
1: And then to us, she'd be like, move, I need my balloons. And I'm like, okay, I work here, <laughs> you don't
0: move i need my balloons
1: (laughs) like she had her creepy cloud voice and also that's weird when someone goes from their character voice to like move
0: (laughs) uh yes "Eh." well
1: bitch i'm trying to deliver pasta here
0: well hey they all float here and with that hi everyone this is blood and wine i'm britney
1: And I'm Tyler, and I'm still trying to decipher what you meant by they all
0: float here. (laughs) It's because you haven't seen it or read the book, okay?
1: Oh, okay.
0: All right. Well, you were talking about balloons. There's the balloons. There's floating. I'm not going to give away spoilers, but it's also, you know, it's an old book. You should read it.
1: (laughs) I mean, yeah, I don't think you could spoil a book that's like 40 years old, but...
0: (laughs) You can, and I still get mad when that happens. All right. Well, we've got quite an episode for you guys today.
1: We do. It's a doozy. And
0: it's not about clowns. It's actually not.
1: <laughs> Thank God. I do not- I, I'm i gonna straight up right here refuse to do a clown murderers episode. Already did Gacy. I don't really know if there's actually others, and if there are, I don't want to know about, like, squiggles who popped people like balloons. I don't know.
0: Um, there are definitely others, but I don't want to do that either.
1: But before we get into our actual topic, I want to take a quick moment to talk to y'all about Patreon. So if y'all don't know what it is, Patreon is a platform where y'all can uh, support us and in turn get access to a bunch of different uh, things. We have Murder Mini episodes, which are like 30-ish minute episodes that are Patreon exclusive. We also have our Bottle Talk episodes, which are 15 to 30 minutes about just diving into wine, which honestly sounds like a dream, would probably uh, hurt your eyes diving into wine.
0: I mean, don't open your eyes under the wine.
1: It would run down your face, but regardless, uh we don't have a pool full of wine. That's a waste. Don't don't do that. That's actually the main problem with this. Don't fill a pool with wine.
0: <laughs> don't waste your wine like that.
1: Um but yes, and if you are a supporter, not only do you get access to all of those things, you get um perks depending on your level of support ranging from different things like social media shout outs to being able to pick a topic and direct your own episode.
0: And while you're at it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other listening platforms where you can hit that subscribe button. You'll be notified of all of our new episodes every Tuesday and any special announcements or anything. um, Because, you know, we could start doing that. We've done one, I think. I think, yeah, we have. (laughs) But just be sure to subscribe. It's the easiest way to know when there's new stuff. Yes. So, speaking of current news, did you hear about the two six-year-olds that were arrested in Florida?
1: Um, oh! By the uh, school, like, officer for, like, assaulting a kid or something, but they're sick. For
0: doing six-year-old things? Yeah. He yeah. literally put these children in cuffs. He was... <sighs> he was fired. Yeah, good. I know. I just... I, I could... I can't even, my mind can't even comprehend, like, why you would ever think that that would be a proper way to punish a child, to, like, arrest them for a misdemeanor. I
1: I just, why would an elementary school resource officer have, like, the ability to arrest? Like, the students are, like, 10 max.
0: Right. I just think it's absolutely ridiculous. And, like, I mean, the charges of the children are being dropped. So, like... I mean, good,
1: but they shouldn't have ever been a thing in the first place. They shouldn't. They
0: shouldn't. It's ridiculous, and I can't believe those children and that family has to go through this. No six-year-old should ever have to say I was in handcuffs.
1: Exactly. But on a lighter note of current news, kind of, not really current news, but something I saw today that doesn't fit anywhere else in the podcast. Um, So you know how some cars will have those, like, baby on board stickers and all those things? Yeah. I saw one today. I was behind him at a stoplight. And it just said, baby's up in this bitch.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it was my favorite thing. I tried to take a picture, but then I thought about my State Farm safe driver discount and didn't touch my phone. So
0: Not worth the photo. Better to not have, you know, just the story. It's fine.
1: Honestly, that should be the commercial. Where, <laughs> you know, the person in the car drives past this, like, incredible thing. And it's like, no, not taking a photo. Boom. Marketing. Boom. So, without further ado, I'm going to get into the topic for today's episode. Yes. And the murders that we're going to be focusing on are trucker murders.
0: Which we, I feel like, have mentioned, or I've had a case that involved truckers before. Like, this is... You
1: did. It, it was the one with... Um, it was the
0: redheaded killer. It murders. was the redheaded
1: killer. Yeah. Yeah. Where the, the kids helped.
0: Yes, exactly. And when you think about it, the lifestyle of a trucker, well, there's a lot of them that are serial killers. Yeah.
1: There's a horrifying amount. The fact that, um, and y'all will see a little bit when I get into my case, but even before choosing the ones I chose, it was hard to narrow down. I bounced between three or four.
0: Yeah, because there's there's, so many.
1: and they're fucked up. All of them. There's the guy who confessed to murder and he had a woman's severed breast in a Ziploc in his pocket. Yeah. He was a trucker. And he just went into the
0: police station. Yep.
1: And he was like, yo, I've been killing. Like, it no. And that doesn't even scratch the surface to how fucked up some of these cases are. Agreed. But a little bit of background. So in the 80s, the FBI was accused by a lot of people of, like, inflating the number of serial killers and just creating this serial killer panic. So that's one of the reasons why today um, the FBI and police officers are pretty hesitant to call something like the work of a serial killer until it's, like, obvious. But while at the time people were like, oh, you're saying all these are serial killers, they're not, recent studies show that the number of serial killer victims has been completely underestimated, even during this serial killer panic.
0: That's terrifying.
1: Yeah. And one of the big reasons for this is the largest group of victims are sex workers. Right. And sex worker murders are often very underreported, as many as 75% of them going unreported. Yeah. So some research into sex worker mortality. And the reason this really connects is because, you know, with the trucker lifestyle, oftentimes their victims are sex workers. So the homicide rate of sex workers in the U.S. today is about 229 out of every 100,000, which compared to the U.S., like general public, it's five out of 100,000. So, like, more than 45 times the rate of the general population. And a lot of these murders, and murders in general, are near highways. And there are maps that show dots of where, like, bodies are found, where murder victims are found. And there are clusters around major transfer points in the interstate system. So, cities like Oklahoma City, Los Angeles... Nashville, Indianapolis, Chicago, Atlanta, Pittsburgh, cities where you have a bunch of different interstates crossing at one point.
0: I've never thought about that. That is terrifying. And the fact that there are maps.
1: Yeah. And regarding truck drivers in general, which for most truck drivers, they are great people. They are not murderers. Do want to throw that out there. But the U.S. has about two million truck drivers and about Three-fourths of them are long-haul truck drivers, so, you know, maybe driving across states, using the interstate, just driving everywhere. So just looking at truck stops, it's estimated that every year about 120 to 140 murders happen of sexually exploited and
0: trafficked victims. At all the stops combined or per stop?
1: combined that would be horrifying
0: i mean it is horrifying so i didn't know which it was to be completely honest
1: i mean per stop there's i mean you stop by a flying j and they're like oh yeah we had three more bodies this week so it's been a pretty light week honestly i
0: thought you said like or like sexual like not
1: murders of them
0: oh okay
1: um, yeah, I thought you no, meant, not... like,
0: where they were, like, assaulted as well. Like, I thought we were including those types, th- oh, not just murder. That's why no. I thought it was...
1: Just, just murders of sex-trafficking victims or sexually exploited victims. Murders of them.
0: Okay. Thank you for clearing that up, um, because now I understand how horrifying my question was. Uh, that would be yeah. if it was...
1: <laughs> I was like, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a couple thousand truck stops, so... Oh, everywhere. Oh, my God. So, that is our horrifying topic and it makes sense why a lot of serial killers are truck drivers.
0: Yes, it does. Well, now that you have introduced us to the horrors of truck driver serial killers, um I think we need to go into our wine because I know I'm going to need some for this episode, but I will just yes. say it's horrifying how the truck driver lifestyle really does make it easy to be a serial killer. Like it's It's not fair, but we've talked about, you know, when cases go amongst multiple states, like, a lot of the times the connection's not made until multiple murders have been committed. And so, yeah, wine. Need wine. Yes. So as you guys know, I recently went to Napa back in September for my birthday, and I thought it was high time that I talk about it and also talk about one of the wines that I brought back. So I'm going to be doing the 2017 Klein Family Cellars Ancient Vines Mor Verde, um, and it is actually from Sonoma.
1: Ooh, ancient vines.
0: Yes, and I'll talk a little bit about that, but... When we were driving back to San Francisco from Napa, we decided to stop in Sonoma just to visit one of the wineries and we stumbled upon this absolutely gorgeous vineyard with like beautiful style home, grapes everywhere, cause a lot of the grapes are grown on site. And back in nineteen eighty-two in Oakley, California, Fred Klein uh, started making his first vintages from plantings of this Morverde grape, as well as Zinfandel, and some of these vines actually dated back to, like, 1880. Wow. So these were imported over from Europe. It's the same vines. You just graft them and continue to grow them. Um,
1: I can't keep a succulent alive on my desk for more than, like, a month. Right. And... These plants have been around for more than a hundred years. What's up with that?
0: This is why um, we don't own a vineyard. Fair. But since these very first plantings, Fred and his wife, Nancy, they've continued to plant vineyards throughout the Sonoma County and they expanded their grapes to include Pinot Noir, Merlot, and Chardonnay. One really exciting thing about Klein Cellars is that they are a sustainable winery um, and they use a variety of different techniques and their goal is to be stewards of the land and create vines that reflect the bounty of these complex and perfect ecosystems. So, a couple of ways that they do this. So, instead of herbicides, they have 1,500 sheep and 500 goats that roam the vineyards to remove the weeds and the bugs and stuff.
1: Oh my God. It's like the hordes of ducks from like the episode, what, two weeks ago?
0: Yeah, except like actually hordes of goats and sheep. Um, I don't like it. <laughs> they also use cover crops, which those help by adding um, nutrients to the soil, and then when it's they're done with these crops, they like fold them back into the soil so they just become a part of it to keep the nutrients in. And they also compost and reuse all of the organic waste from creating their wine, so anything that comes out of the tank that doesn't go into the bottle, they use it back on the soil. And This is like their waste stream. And now they also have um, solar energy and they recently updated all of the solar energy panels that they were using. And it's designed to offset a hundred percent of the winery's electrical consumption. So Wow, This is extremely important to them. And they're actually a certified California sustainable winery and vineyard. And that's a program that acknowledges like these long-term commitments that they've made to being eco-friendly and sustainable wine growing. And I know this, you know, may not be interesting to everyone, but it's just so great to know when I'm opening a bottle and drinking it that there's not remnants of pesticides in it. I mean, just thinking about like that one aspect, because... Especially in red wine, the skin's in there for a long time. I know alcohol kills bacteria and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But why introduce that stuff into it?
1: Well, and I don't think there's enough alcohol in wine to naturally make it
0: um, sterile. No, I don't think so either. So anyway, I just found all that information. I really loved it. If you're ever there in Sonoma, I do highly recommend going. This bottle was, I believe, like 20 bucks. It was not nearly as expensive as some of the wineries in nearby napa which honestly napa is really expensive it's worth going to i highly recommend it but if you you know maybe want to go to a couple places in napa and you're looking for something a little bit more budget friendly sonova is like 10 miles down the road and it's absolutely gorgeous same type of area um wonderful vineyards but a little bit uh less pricey so i've talked about the winery now i'm gonna actually talk about the wine <laughs> So this ancient vines, Morverde, draws from, again, some of these oldest and most historic uh, vineyard blocks. But they're actually pretty barren. Like, they don't produce a lot of grapes. But less grapes means more concentrated grapes. So the wine is bursting with a lot of flavor. Because the less grapes you get, the more concentrated they are, the more flavor they've got. They are able to reach this level of concentration by all of their extensive farming techniques, their singular oakly terroir, and the unique cooling band of air that flows in from the sacrum. The grapes hold characteristics of dark, dusty berry fruit, and on the nose there's hints of eucalyptus, distinct chocolate characteristics, and a luscious deep plum flavor. This wine goes really well with grilled lamb, wild mushroom ragu, and peppercorn-crusted beef tenderloin. Please give me that.
1: (laughs) That sounds amazing. I don't really like lamb outside of, like, a It
0: Lamb is a lot fattier than I thought it was. I had a piece of lamb one time, and I was like, oh, this is definitely not what I imagined. But it was tasty once you got around the fat. Um, but this is a corked bottle, so I'm going to open this up and get into it.
1: So, just going back to the lamb conversation real quick, it always just makes me think of that red-headed lady in the shitty sweaters with her little lamb hand doll.
0: Lamb Chop?
1: Yeah, her. her. Oh
0: my god.
1: Lamb Chop and Miss Susie Q, or whatever her name was. (laughs) I don't
0: think that was it. It was a very little pop. Uh, the cork was definitely in there. I had to tug on that. Oh, so beautiful. Definitely fruity. Like, dark fruit on the nose immediately. Okay, tell me about your wine, because I want to get into this one.
1: Yes. So, the wine I'm drinking today is the 2017 Dita Akelo Cabernet Sauvignon from Australia. And it could be Dita Akeo, but I think it's Akelo. I don't know. It's something like that. There's two L's in it. I don't know what language we're speaking. So this is a very, like, brooding, dark, and complex Australian wine. It has hints of minty fruit, which is kind of the hallmark of Australian cabs. Is that, like, minty fruit flavor? I'm interested. Um, And it's balanced by notes of, like, cigar box and spice from spending a year in the oak barrel. So when you're drinking it, the fruit jumps onto the palate, you get fresh notes of cassis and red currants, and then you get this nice, dark, what they call brooding, characteristics. So this wine is like 24-year-old who, I don't know, <laughs> writes in a Starbucks and has a rain cloud over their head.
0: Yeah, it's very, like... That's what I'm a man. It's a brooding wine. Oh, my gosh. Or, like,
1: this... Ooh, maybe this wine is, like, a divorced dad with, like, five o'clock shadow that's gone too long, and he's played by Bill Hader. I love it. And he's brooding. Okay. Uh, So I'm about to drink Bill Hader. I will uh,
0: pick up that dad any day. Fair. Maybe
1: shave first. (laughs) Um, So the optimum ripeness...
0: I want him to keep the five o'clock shadow.
1: I'm thinking like five o'clock shadow, but it's been like a week kind of thing where it's like the in between five o'clock shadow and beard phase where it's like, "Mm, you need to pick one or the other.
0: (laughs) Well, okay. You're a man. How do you grow a beard? Oh, that's right. You don't.
1: (laughs) Okay. Listen. Just
0: kidding.
1: (laughs) Rude. Anyways, my wine (laughs) So the optimum ripeness of this harvest really helps to make these primary fruits shine in the wine, and this modest oak influence gives it that cigar and brown spice kind of flavor. It's pretty high in body, tannins, and acidity. So the combination of focused fruit and this herbal nuance make it complement a ton of different foods. It does best with very juicy meat dishes. So think steaks, herbed pork, and again, cheeseburgers. Because apparently I love cheeseburger wine. Only. All the cheeseburger
0: um, wine. But that's because everyone it, could go with a cheeseburger.
1: It's true. Everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. But this wine won the silver medal in the 2018 Harvest Challenge. And just to explain how much this wine is a brooding divorced dad writer, um, on the bottle... It doesn't give really much of a background or info. I mean, it tells you, like, what it is, how much alcohol's in it, the fact that it's imported. And then right in the corner it says, Alluring fruit, beguiling acidity, modest tannins, demure oak. Which don't ever call... I hate the word demure.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've ever used that word in a sentence.
1: No, it gives me creepy, like, Lolita vibes, and I hate it.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, let's get it open.
1: And mine is also a screw top one. Or not a screw. Wow. Wow. It's not a screw top one. It is also a corked one. As you're using. Good Lord, I need this one. (laughs) As you're
0: using your corkscrew, you call it a screw top. (laughs) You know, don't advise
1: that. It won't work.
0: It won't. That's dark. I know. Like, that is black in a glass. What do you smell? It smells like a
1: cab, but it also a little bit smells like nail polish remover.
0: That's because it needs to breathe.
1: I mean, yeah. Alright. Time for cheers? Let's do it. Cheers. Cheers. I mean, I guess that's what brooding tastes like. Brooding
0: has a taste?
1: I mean... I don't know. I don't to me when I think brooding I think like rainy depressed middle-aged people. I don't know. Actually, for some reason when I think brooding I picture like the actor David Tennant. Really? Not that he's that brooding in anything I've seen him in, but I just feel like he'd play a brooding guy very well.
0: I just picture like a pissy teenager. Oh. But maybe that's not right. I don't know.
1: I guess I picture more like clinical depression <laughs> rather than like <laughs> Moodiness. I mean,
0: because it's diff- broody. Is is broody a word? It is now. <laughs> That's um, kind of like teen angst, but I don't know if it really is. But anyway, so wine.
1: Yeah, but um, it's good. It's very intense. It definitely. I can see why it would go really well with like juicy, meaty things.
0: I thought you were saying it went <laughs> well with juice, <laughs> No, I was like,
1: it go really well with like a nice apple juice.
0: <laughs> Oh my god. So, not juice, but the very first time I can ever remember having wine, I mixed it with Dr. Pepper. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Because I was, like, a a kid, and I was being naughty, and I don't... I I was scared, and also... Oh,
1: like when you were, like, seven or something?
0: Well, okay. I was at least, like, 11, but...
1: Okay, but not, okay, I was thinking when you were, In like, college. 17 or, like, <laughs> 18 or not 18, like, drinking it to get drunk, not drinking it to be, like,
0: wine, I'm bad. No, it was definitely me drinking it and, like, giggling, and, by the way, it tastes like shit. It was uh, Francia and Diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> um...
1: Honestly, I remember how precious uh, having soda in the house was when we were children. So I'm mad that you wasted that <laughs> night, Dr. Pepper, like 20 years ago. I mean, I drank but, it.
0: Well, Oh my you God, have. it was 20 years ago. Okay, I just want to talk about my wine, not that.
1: Funny enough, that was also uh, my first taste of wine was not 20 years ago, but um, was also the box of Franzia in the pantry. And I was like, I'm going to get a sip. Twist and then you just like I was in, like, in this mouth, is bad from the spout into yeah. the
0: mouth.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think I was like, I don't know, maybe like nine or ten or eleven or something. I don't know, Um and old enough to be like, ooh,
0: this is bad, but um, but not old enough to get a glass. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know. I was a fucking weird kid, As uh, but no, I thought it was, I thought it was really gross and. I mean, to this day, I think Franzia is really gross, so (laughs) I was right. But, you know, hey, I will say it's really gross, but when you, you know, have $15 or whatever to spend and you want to get something that's the equivalent of six bottles that will last, go
0: for it. Go for it. Okay. My wine, not Franzia, from Sonoma. So, you know, a little different. This one, definitely, it's a medium-bodied, fruitier red wine. I feel like I'm tasting a lot of that plum. I smell the black fruit for sure. I would say maybe tiny hints of eucalyptus, although eucalyptus is not something I'm sniffing on the reg, so not really sure what it smells like. Um, but it, I do get a bit of a plant something. Um, but it's mostly oh, overpowered didn't... by these like dark berry fruits. So if you do ever find yourself in Sonoma definitely check out Klein Family Cellars. The tasting is $10 for five to six wines, depending on which tasting you pick. And if you buy a bottle, they waive the tasting fee. So essentially I, well, and of course my list had six wines, but I really tried like nine or 10 because she just gave me other tastings and I bought a bottle.
1: That is the best kind of tastings. That's when you have the best person behind the counter pouring Because they're like, you know what? Ooh, this one's my favorite. So here's a little bit of that. It's not a tasting menu, but here.
0: That's exactly what this was. And I I love that too, because it adds like more of personality to the experience. And also, I mean, the more wines I try, the more likely I am to buy multiple bottles. Like, duh.
1: I mean, yeah. Well, honestly, I kind of hate when you go to a tasting and they're like, all right, here's the first one walk away. Oh, that
0: drives me crazy.
1: Here you go. Which Ready for number two? There you go. I
0: will say Robert Mondavi is a fantastic vineyard and I had a lovely time, but that's what the tasting was like. We went up to the counter. We were like, we'd like to do this tasting. They poured all four reds and said, here you go. There was no background. And on the sheet, it had the name of the wine. I'm like, cool. You're literally telling us nothing about it. And so I was really disappointed because these are not yeah. cheap tastings. That was like 40 bucks.
1: See, and from something, from a wine tasting, granted if it's busy, okay. But um, it was not- in a place where, especially if you're like the only person or the only group doing the tasting, I really want to hear, you know, like, okay, what do you think about that wine? You know this one has a nice like nutty almost pine needle kind of flavor going on try this i w- I want to hear like I want to have a conversation about the wine, yep, and I get it like it's your job. I don't always want to have conversations about my job, but i would i would i just appreciate that like I don't know knowledge that I can see like, oh, you are someone who knows. About this rather than someone who just knows how to pour a bottle.
0: I want someone to teach me something when I go to a tasting. Teach me about the vineyard. Teach me about this grape. Why is this wine the way it is? If you don't like it, tell me you don't like it, but tell me why. Because, again, like, there are wines I love that you hate and vice versa. Because it's Mm -hmm. all about personal preference.
1: Well, and it's one of those things. You don't order a tasting... To just like, ooh, I want some wine. You order a tasting to, like, learn about these things, be like, ooh, so this is a Grenache grape, yada, yada, yada. If you just wanted to drink wine, you would just order a glass.
0: Exactly. So.
1: Or if you weren't sure if you wanted it, you'd ask for a sample and then a glass. Like, the tasting is, like, part of it. the theater is part of the tasting. It's
0: an experience.
1: But with that, we have our wine. We have our topic. Let's go into the cases.
0: Okay. The killer I picked for this week's episode is Robert Ben Rhodes. Also,
1: of course you fucking yep, did. He's also
0: known as the Truck Stop Killer. So, yep. clearly if he has uh, that name with how many Truck Stop Killers we've already talked about, obviously he's a big one.
1: See, when I told you this topic, um, you replied back with that. And I was like, okay, cool. Brittany already knows her thing. <laughs> and then the second I was doing like, okay, let's find out some truck driver murders. I literally typed into Google truck driver murders. He's the first one. Yeah,
0: I know. And I'm like, okay, well, all right, fine. Well, when I heard about him, it was so horrifying that I knew if we ever did something like this, I was going to cover him. All right. So the sources I used, the first one is an article from All That's Interesting. That's actually written by the whole All That's Interesting staff. There was not an author that was written. And then I use an article from Thought Catalog by Chrissy Stockton. Back on April 1st, 1990, there was a highway patrolman in Arizona who saw like this tractor trailer on the shoulder of the highway. So Mm -hmm. he, he pulls over and approaches the vehicle to see if the driver needed any help. Like, are they stranded? What's going on? But what he ended up stumbling upon was the site of a horror movie. There was a young girl chained to the truck, Her mouth was gagged, and she wore a terrified look on her face, and she's screaming for help. What the fuck? Oh, I'm just diving right in, by the way.
1: Oh, I mean, yeah.
0: Robert Ben Rhodes, who was the driver, tried to explain that this was a private, consensual matter, and at this point in time, police didn't even know they needed to be looking for Rhodes. This patrol officer saw what was going on and placed Rhodes under arrest.
1: I mean, yeah, how in any way is oh this is a private consensual matter. She is chained up and screaming for help and terrified. Exactly. That's not even if it was just a consensual fun sex thing, bitch, you're on the side of the road. No
0: Exactly. So while the officer is waiting for backup, he discovered a twenty five caliber automatic pistol in Rhodes' possession, so just you know, something else to be like, dude, what is this? And After he found the chained-up woman, Rhodes was charged with kidnapping and assault. When police were exploring his truck further, they found a murder kit along with whips, chains, cords, dildos, and leashes, and then clips, pins, and fish hooks that he used on his victim's genitals. Oh! Robert Ben Rhodes, as it turned out, was one of the most dangerous sex offenders and serial killers In the United States. His life was um, a truck driver. And investigations following his arrest found that he had likely tortured, raped, and killed at least 50 women while he was on the road. But it really could be hundreds. Um, As you talked about in the upfront, it's it's hard to know because a lot of the women were sex workers or they were hitchhiking. They were runaways. We don't know. People with transient lifestyles. Rhodes was known for taking pictures of his victims right before he murdered them. And inside his truck, he had a dungeon-like compartment, which was between the seats. And there were handcuffs on the ceiling. So that's where this one victim that was discovered um, fortunately alive, that's where she was hanging. She was chained there, tortured there, and that's where all of the other women had been.
1: Jesus. So it's literally
0: like this torture chamber on wheels. Which reminds me a little bit of Toy Box Killer. Yes. I've got those same vibes. I hate this. It's horrible. And Rhodes may have picked up these sadistic tendencies from his father, who molested a 12-year-old girl and killed himself before he could ever be put on trial for his crime. But that by no means is justifying anything that Rhodes is doing. So, like many serial killers, Rhodes at one time tried to become a police officer, and his attempt to join law enforcement was never successful, and he became a truck driver instead. So, think of serial killers like Ed Kemper. He really wanted to be a cop, so he ended up just like being friends with them and essentially turned himself in because he was that fucking good. Yeah. Like, he would hang out at bars with the cops. I don't think Rhodes was doing that type of thing, but he also had that desire to be a cop. And when that didn't happen, it's like he makes a complete 180. He's like, all right, I'm going to kill people then.
1: It makes sense. I mean, if you're thinking about it from the mindset of what is a career I could have that would give me the opportunity to have complete control over victims. You know, if you were a fucked up person being a police officer might give you that ability.
0: Unfortunately that's true. Rhodes had a son and he was married three separate times so somehow this dude gets three wives. Um, One of his wives actually confirmed that he was abusive to her emotionally, verbally, physically, and sexually. She also says that Rhodes became sexually aroused by seeing her suffer, specifically when she was hospitalized for lupus. So he's were real fucked up. And what the fuck? And on top of all of these other things, this abuse that he's doing, he was really into BDSM and involved himself and his wife in the BDSM scene, uh, which, you know, was during the 80s. But his wife did not want to participate. His nickname during that time was Whips and Chains. And there are actually photos you can find of him in his BDSM gear. I don't
1: think I want to see that.
0: He has pants on, but it's super disturbing regardless. At one point, Rhodes even bought his wife a male sex slave, and she refused to see this person. She's like, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want a sex slave. I don't want any of this.
1: She's like, get Gerald out of my living room. I want to go to bed.
0: Well, and this is, you know, she's no longer with him. Rose's first confirmed murders happened in January of 1990, but it's presumed his first actual murder happened a long time before then. The 1990 murders he confessed to were of the newlyweds Candace Walsh and her husband, Douglas Zakowski. The couple had left Seattle in November of 1989, and they were hitchhiking to Georgia for their honeymoon. And... Ew,
1: <laughs> that is so far to hitchhike. One, two, why do you honeymoon in Georgia?
0: Well, they were preaching the Christian gospel as they were hitchhiking from Seattle to Georgia.
1: That is like almost as far away, like almost the complete other corner as you can get.
0: Right? Ew.
1: Maybe that was the point.
0: Maybe they were going cross country speaking the gospel. That's not unheard of.
1: I know, but that sounds like a shitty honeymoon. <laughs> Go to, like, Hawaii.
0: So, by the time they made it to Texas, that's when Rhodes picked them up. He killed Zukowski immediately and kept Walsh in his truck's built-in torture chamber for a week so he could continually rape and assault her. Zukowski's body was found in January 1990, so that same month near Interstate 10, east of Orzano, Texas, and it was eventually identified in 1992, so a couple of years later. But it took almost 13 years for authorities to identify the remains of Candace Walsh. Her body ended up being found by deer hunters uh, near the mouth of a canyon in Millard Country, Utah.
1: God, that is so far from Texas.
0: Very far. But again, he kept her for a week and he was a truck driver. He could have been any- a truck driver. anywhere anywhere. Her death was caused by multiple gunshot wounds, and it took a cross check of dental charts to eventually determine that the body found was actually Walsh. It had been so long, and she had been so decomposed, and also how she had been killed multiple gunshots. Yeah. Another victim we know about is when Rhodes abducted an 18 year old Houston woman who he tortured and raped. He cut her hair and removed her pubic hair before she eventually escaped. And because she believed that no one, even the police, could protect her from Rose, she refused to identify him or cooperate with police in building a case against him. So she escaped, but did nothing with that information she had. Like, the terror and the torture that he had put her through, it just paralyzed her from doing anything. Oh, my
1: God. Because you can't blame someone who's gone through that and terrified, because there's so many times... When killers or abusers or attackers or whatever do have the opportunity to go after their victim again, you know, and they're even angrier this time. So, this fucker, he's a fucker.
0: He's a fucker, and it's about to get even worse. The crime that just solidified his life sentence, because, I mean, spoiler alert, he's getting caught. So what, you know, made him get caught was the rape and murder of Regina Walters. She was a 14-year-old girl from Pasadena, Texas, and Walters was hitchhiking with her boyfriend, Ricky Jones, when Rhodes picked them up in February of 1990. So this is just a month after he killed the newlyweds. Rhodes promptly killed Jones, so just like he did with Zakowski, and Jones's remains were later found in Mississippi, so, you know, far out from Texas, he obviously kept him for a while. I mean, what
1: is he? Is he, like, an Amazon Prime driver? Like...
0: Well, it's 1990, God. so no, he's not. Okay, fair. But he kept Walters hostage for two weeks in his torture chamber. Unlike her boyfriend, who was killed instantly, Walters was kept for a really long time. Yeah. And... While she was in his captivity, Rhodes took several photos of her. Um, There's photographic evidence that was seized during a search of Rhodes' home, and it shows hair growth and different bruising. And so she was in the torture chamber for two weeks, but he clearly had her for a really long time. You could see bruises Uh. appear, bruises fading, her hair was cut, her hair grew, like... She was with him a while. He pierced her with fishing hooks and would dress her in all black. The most disturbing photos that he did capture of her were actually just minutes before her death. They were taken in this abandoned farmhouse where her body was eventually found. And in these photos, you can see her wearing a black dress and heels... Which were not the clothes that she was wearing when she was hitchhiking. It's one their clothes that Rhodes gave her to wear. She also has this look on her face that's just of sheer terror. There is no other way to describe it. Um, There's one where she has her hand in front of her face. There's one where she's holding her hand out in front of her. Like, I think she knows that she's about to die. Yeah. Um, After he took these photos, he killed her with a garrote made of bailing wire. And afterward, he left her body there in this abandoned farmhouse off of Interstate 70 in Illinois. So again, she was very far from home. Walters did end up remaining his sole murder conviction when this first started, like when he was first caught. However, since his initial incarceration, he later confessed to more murders that he committed over the years, and that included Walsh and Zakowski. um... That was 20 years after they had happened. So what he was caught for was like kidnapping and torture of the woman in his truck and then he was convicted of the murder of Walters. Because his preferred victims, like we are saying, were hitchhikers and sex workers, it's hard to know how many victims he really had. Primes were From these type of people, as we've discussed time and time again, are very underreported, both by the victims and by the limited support systems or family that they may or may not have.
1: Well, any fringe or disenfranchised, it's a better word, group, it's hard because even coming out as a witness or as, you know, someone who really saw something who was able to testify, you know, can brand you and put you in danger.
0: Exactly. And then there were the people who maybe did have missing family members and they were pretty sure Rhodes killed them. But knowing that he was already going to be in jail for the rest of his life without parole, families of other alleged victims, they really didn't wish to go through the emotional trauma of a trial. Really. So it is estimated that at his peak, Rhodes was killing one to three women a month.
1: One to three a
0: month. Yeah. And it was ultimately his truck logs that did him in. And that placed him in the area of 50 unsolved murders. So investigators were able to trace him via his truck stop routes in conjunction with women who had been reported missing over a 15 year time span. And through his truck logs, they placed him in areas where they were. Though at this time, the amount that he traveled, it made it difficult to pin down just how many rapes and murders he committed. He hasn't confessed to any more, but they have a pretty good idea of who his victims were. Rose's confession to the murders of Walsh and Zakowski added a second life sentence to the one that he already had from Regina Walters. And this second life sentence was a part of a plea deal in exchange for prosecutors not seeking the death penalty. In this really bizarre truck stop killer case, there are testimonies of women who managed to get away from him unscathed. So not only just the woman who was saved when the police officer pulled, you know, over on the side of the road to look at the truck and see what was going on, but a woman named Pamela Milliken, who's now in her 50s, she would only learn about Rhodes's crimes when a photo of her that had been taken in 1985 was posted in 2015 by international law enforcement agencies. And so this photo was found on the same roll as the shots of Regina Walter. And Millikan told Investigation Discovery that she was hitchhiking to go find her brother in Winnipeg when she ended up in Rhodes' truck. He snapped the photo of her and she acquired, you know, the, to his motives, like, why'd you take that photo? And, He said it was a way to keep a log of his passengers in case he was robbed or something happened to him, which honestly doesn't sound too far-fetched when you really think about it. Like, she's hitchhiking and he's picked her up. Like, okay. Like, tells me he was a good fucking liar, which is disgusting.
1: It horrifies me so much that his first confirmed murders that we have are from January of 1990. And he was caught four months later. er Or... Three months later. He was caught in April. I know. And just how many there are and how long it's been going on and how many how many people that's just not known.
0: Exactly. She later said that he told her he was going to Florida and that he wanted her to come with him. So she did. And at one point they're in the cab of his truck and he points to a sign on the dashboard that says, Cash, grass, or ass. No rides for free. Which makes me sick. That's disgusting.
1: So fucking gross. And there's so many people that be like,
0: I love that. I won't put that on my
1: car. (laughs) Go fuck yourself.
0: Seriously. Um, So she recalled that she didn't have any money. She didn't smoke pot. So she knew what it would be. So she had what she described as consensual sex with him. And he dropped her off at a bus depot there in Winnipeg. So she narrowly escaped. God. Another close call was with a woman named Vanessa Veselka. She actually wrote an article that has been published in GQ, and it's an extremely deep dive into her very near miss. She was picked up by Rhodes and barely escaped, only to many, many years later, similar to Milliken, discover who had actually picked her up and what he was capable of. And he had threatened her and he did a lot of things. And she ended up doing like this deep investigation to determine, was she one of the people in his cab? And through this investigation, she learned that she was. Um, so the article is titled The Truck Stop Killers from October 2012. It's online. Just go to GQ or just search it like Vanessa Veselka, The Truck Stop Killer. I highly recommend reading it. Um, it's it's so scary because it, later in her life she finds out like, oh my god, I could have been one of these women. So that is the case of Robert Ben Rhodes, The Truck Stop Killer crazy motherfucker
1: yeah god that is so fucked up i wonder because i feel like trucking to me just feels like a new earth thing i wonder how long long haul trucking has really been a thing because I i feel like you know we always talk about how the 70s the 60s and 70s when all the serial killers were and i wonder if It's not that there's been a lot of decrease, it's just that there's these different opportunities like being long-haul truckers where you can do it and not get it connected as serial killers.
0: Or never be caught. Yeah. So, I mean, I really don't know. It's We've talked about it and I don't remember the number, but there are active serial killers out there right now and I don't feel like... Serial killers are something we have in current news, but they're there and they're doing their crimes. They're murdering people. We just don't know about it yet.
1: Well, I mean, honestly, if you live in a bigger city, someone getting murdered is not, I mean, it's definitely not front page news. It's something you might read on the news website, you know, person shot and killed in wherever part of the city. But it's not even going to be something that really draws your attention enough to click on it.
0: I think it has to be something very gruesome and very out of the ordinary to yeah be front page news today. Which is horrible, because there's shootings and domestic violence and stabbings and things happening on a daily basis. But like you're saying, like that's not front page news. It has to be something that's mm-hmm. like... Entire family slaughtered with an axe, and that'll be front-page news.
1: It's horrible. Yeah. I don't understand, like, the formula and ideas behind, like, what makes front-page news. Because I feel like you'll see things like City of Austin set to replace sewer pipes as front-page news, and you're like, okay.
0: Yeah, that's not what needs to be on the front page.
1: And then it's like, oh, if you go five pages in... You can see this person who got murdered, or whatever. Like, yeah, come the fuck on.
0: I agree. Well, okay, so that is my case. What case did you do?
1: So, mine is kind of a twofer, or it's a case within a case.
0: You really had to bring two cases to this really fucked up episode?
1: Yes. Yes, I did. So, mine are the killers Bruce Mendenhall and John Robert Williams. And I do want to note that they're not connected in the, like, traditional way of, like, their partners or something, but they're, like, their stories are intertwined. I'll put it that way. Okay. So the sources that I used, an article from Listverse, 10 Serial Killing long haul Truckers by Anya Pham. An article from the Los Angeles Times, FBI Makes a Connection Between Long-Haul Truckers and Serial Killings by Scott Glover. Which is
0: what we've been so talking kind of, about the whole time.
1: Yep, yeah, I kind of on the nose. I also used that for some of my um, research on the topic. Obviously. Um, an article from the Amber Advocate, She Was a Sweet Girl and Did Not Deserve to Die. And I couldn't find the author there. An article from the Land Press, Drive by truckers by Ginger Strand, an article from Courier in Press. Court denies appeal from convicted killer Mendenhall by Len Wells, and then the Wikipedia page for Bruce Mendenhall.
0: That's a lot of sources, dude.
1: Yeah. So, on June twenty-fifth of two thousand seven, Sarah Holbert, who is twenty-five, went to Nashville's Cohen Street area, which is kind of kind of seedy, not a not a great area. With two guys named Lee and Hollywood. Those were their names. Someone named their child Hollywood. If he's not a stripper or a porn star, he is losing money. That's all I'm gonna say. So, the three of them got some crack. They smoked. (laughs) (laughs) They got some crack dare to be drug free.
0: God... (laughs) I remember like if you dare was so cool <laughs> because I don't know I felt like it, it was like maybe like an investigator and it's but like that's not it at all but like that's where my head was because I was like yeah dare see so I I would go I remember with, like, people's lockers no I'm just kidding for, for pot <laughs> god
1: <you> fucking narc <laughs> I remember being in like fourth grade or whatever dares the thing it's not this nine year old kid and they're like. This is cocaine, and if you smell it, you will die and you will murder your parents. And I'm like, I hope no one does that. (laughs) Um, But no, they were smoking crack. And then they got into a fight about, you know, how to divvy up what was left. Sarah got annoyed and left. She was like, fuck y'all, I'm peacing out. Lee figured that she was heading to the nearby TA, which is a truck stop, and it had a pretty lively sex worker area and she was going to go there to make some money. He watched her disappear, and he never saw her again. Somewhere there in the parking lot, Sarah Holbert climbed into the wrong truck, and about one in the morning, a security guard at TA found her face up in the back lot near the fence with a half-inch hole in her head. So, looking at the crime scene, Nashville detective Pat Postiglione thought a serial
0: killer how after one murder is he already like saying oh it's got to be a serial killer or is this not the only one
1: well for a couple reasons in his work he'd seen a lot of he'd encountered serial killers before and when he was looking at holbert he saw that she was naked she was carefully posed the soles of her feet were pressed together so that her legs made this like diamond shape oh And there wasn't a sign of a struggle. There also wasn't a ton of evidence. I mean, Nashville police really had two things to go on. They had a sneaker footprint, and then they had this grainy surveillance tape that showed trucks going in and out of the lot. So, you know, all these things together, he's like, this is someone who's done this before. This is someone who knows what they're doing. This is a serial killer. And also, he knows it's a trucker. And there was one truck that had a yellow cab pulling a white trailer that stayed for only 16 minutes. Oh. But as a lead, that's not a ton, because it's really grainy footage. I mean, he can't... That's all he can see, and it's like, okay. Right. Well, there's a million of those trucks. Right. Postiglione also knew that another sex worker had been killed just a few weeks earlier in Lebanon, Tennessee, which is like 30 miles east on I-40, That woman had been shoved into a truck stop trash can with garbage piled onto her stomach.
0: Oh my god.
1: When he sees this and he's thinking serial killer, he contacted the FBI's Violent Criminals Apprehension Program, or the VCAP. And he asked them to do a query on the national database and look at similar crimes on highways that connected into the Nashville region. So... An FBI analyst, you know, did the search and confirmed that there were a few cases that looked similar, including a sex worker who'd been killed at a truck stop in Alabama. So Postiglione and his partner Lee Freeman decided that their next step was to ask for every credit card receipt from the TA the night of the murder to see if their killer had bought something because they knew they had a trucker to right. find. And they knew this because of a pattern that had previously been established and discovered about truck driver murderers. And the woman who first kind of discovered and saw this pattern was Terry Turner, who's a supervisory intelligence analyst with the Oklahoma Bureau of Investigation in Oklahoma City.
0: OBI! OBI. They do a lot there, because I feel like we're finding cases a lot of the times where they're involved.
1: I mean, well, it's especially when we talk about truck driver killers. I'm surprised yours didn't have Oklahoma. In Me it too, because, because of the intersection. Oklahoma City is known as like the crossroads of the US because of I-35 and I-40 yep. going through. Exactly. It. So, back in September of 2003, a homicide case had landed on Terry's desk and it was a body that was found on I-40. She immediately put out this word seeking other similar female victims who had been found nude, near interstates, and signs of being bound. Within 72 hours, two responses came back from Arkansas and Mississippi. So at that point, she's like, okay, I'm looking at some link yeah. crimes. And she had her communication specialist monitor for further cases that might be coming in. After seven months, they had seven homicides, and she refers to these murder victims as her seven girls.
0: Honestly, I'm surprised there weren't more cases that fell into the women found on the side of the highway, nude bound.
1: I think there were probably some other qualifying things that she must have put in. Because
0: I'm sure she got calls for ones that were that, but didn't fit the profile she was looking for.
1: So... Eventually, the investigators identified two of the women, and both of them had worked as truck stop sex workers, and that was the breakthrough moment for her. She was quoted as saying, The vast majority of truck drivers are good, hardworking people, and without them, our nation would come to a screeching halt. But there are very few who have found that that particular job is very suited to this particular type of crime.
0: Yep. Yep. Like we were saying, unfortunately, it's kind of the perfect serial killer job.
1: Yeah. In the spring of 2004, she decided to have a meeting in Oklahoma City for all of the investigators that were working on these seven cases and any others that could possibly be related. And she was saying that she anticipated, you know, 20 to 25 people to come in. But by the time word gets around about the different kind of cases they're going to be talking about... Over 60 investigators from seven states showed up at that meeting, and that really began this initiative. Yeah. So, FBI analysts at the VCAP also came with some even more surprising news. When they ran through their database, they found more than 250 homicides that were connected to I-40 in the existing files. Just this one
0: 250? highway.
1: 250? Yeah. On one highway. And these were spread out across Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Texas. So not even the whole
0: highway. And doesn't I-40 only go like through the panhandle of Texas? Yeah. Oh my god. So it's like the smallest part of Texas that it could possibly go through.
1: So this case that originally landed on Terry's desk was then shown on America's Most Wanted. And the case was the murder of 19-year-old Casey Joe Pipestem. Casey was raised in Oklahoma City. She was a member of the Seminole tribe. Casey was raised by her grandma until she passed away when Casey was just about seven. And then she went to live with other relatives, but it was really difficult for her to fit in living in these rural communities. Casey dropped out of high school. She moved back to Oklahoma City, and she got involved in drugs. And ultimately, she fell victim to exploitation and trafficking at truck stops in Texas and Oklahoma just so she could survive.
0: I feel like it's so unfortunate, but there is so much drug use in Oklahoma.
1: I think it's crazy how, um, you know, oftentimes I feel like drug use is looked at as like a city problem, but it's so prevalent in more rural communities and rural states that I mean, it's horrifying.
0: They're everywhere. Like, drugs are all over the place, and they range from ones like marijuana that it's like, okay, cool, so it's a cigarette, essentially. And then...
1: I know. It's like, okay, have fun with your Cheetos and your nap.
0: um, (laughs) Oh my god, literally. Um, But like, or it, it, you know, then there's like crystal meth, where it's like, okay, yeah, that's something you shouldn't fuck with.
1: Real. So, back to Casey. Her body was found on January 31st of 2004. She'd been beaten, raped, strangled, and then thrown off of a bridge. What? She was only 19 years old.
0: Thrown off of a bridge. How could you be so beyond disrespectful to just dispose of someone's body that way?
1: It takes a horrifying kind of person to display that lack of empathy and lack of humanity for other people. Police Lieutenant Larry Hallmark from Grapevine, Texas, he shared at this meeting with the participants how they could help find Casey's killer. He spent a decade interviewing pimps, sex trafficking victims, and family members in order to figure out what happened to Casey. Hallmark also interviewed many truckers who remembered having seen her, and almost all of them said the same thing. She was a sweet girl and did not deserve to die.
0: Of course she didn't.
1: No. And I mean, you know, yeah, you could say that about anyone. Like, no one deserves to die. But to me, that just fucking hits home. She's this 19-year-old kid. Yeah, Hit a rough part in her life. But, you know, we all hit rough patches. We all hit low points. She was doing her best. She was surviving. And she fucking got murdered.
0: It's just not fair.
1: So... After America's Most Wanted aired this episode about Casey, a woman called in and she reported that her nephew, who was already in jail, had bragged about doing something similar, and she gave police this guy's name, John Robert Williams, and he was a 28-year-old long haul trucker. At the time, Williams and his girlfriend were sitting in jail in Mississippi, and they'd been accused of the murder of 20-year-old Nikki Hill. So, Williams and his girlfriend had kidnapped Nikki from a casino in Mississippi, killed her, and then dumped her body on this rural county road. And concerned that they'd been seen leaving the casino with her, his girlfriend panicked and called the police and told them that, you know, she and Williams had just found this body. The story unraveled and the two of them were arrested for the murder. Wow. During the interrogation's, Williams confessed to more than a dozen slayings, including many of the cases that Terry Turner had been investigating, and he had detailed knowledge of how the crimes had been committed. So things like whether the women were killed by manual strangulation or with a ligature, and he explained how some had been sexually assaulted, in some cases after they were dead. And for example, he knew that one victim, Buffy Ray Brawley, had the word ebony tattooed on her right thigh. And he also knew that she had these deep lacerations on her head, which he said she suffered when he struck her with a tire thumper, which is a, a tool that truckers use. Um, he said that she had solicited him for sex at a truck stop in Indianapolis, saying that the second she tapped to my window, she was a dead woman.
0: It's so horrifying to me, the level of detail that a lot of serial killers remember from each kill. Because you would, yeah. and, and maybe not, but I, I often feel like you would think, after they've done so many, maybe they kind of start to blur together, or you get this mixed up, or it's like, oh, did she have the tattoo, or did she have the tattoo? But part of... What I believe, you know, is driving them to commit these crimes is, like, that the passion and all the... uh, That they want to remember everything, you know? Like, that's part of why they're doing it. And that's why a lot of serial killers will go back to the scene of a crime to, like, re-experience it. So they remember every detail forever. It's just
1: horrifying how it's... They're remembering it because it's enjoyable. I
0: know. It's sick.
1: And... He's saying all these things. So for a lot of these killings, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the victims, there wasn't much evidence found with their bodies and stuff. But he's giving enough information that's like, I mean, he had to be the one who did it. That's the only way he'd know all of this. And so also one side note I want to make, you know, his aunt sees this on America's Most Wanted and calls and is like, I think that's my nephew. He was bragging about a murder that sounds similar to this. Don't wait until you see a murder on Unsolved Mysteries or whatever. If someone's bragging to you about a murder they did, maybe you should call the police then. D- just a thought.
0: It was also her nephew. I'm sure that's not something that was the easiest thing to do. And maybe he was often a bragger. Like maybe she didn't really know if it was legit or not or if he was just full of shit.
1: Yeah. I just, you know, I urge you, if someone confesses that they murdered someone to you, you should tell the police. Absolutely. You should.
0: See something, say something. Hear something, say something. Concerned about something, say something. Just say something.
1: Yeah. So, during these police interviews, Williams was shown a picture of Casey. And when he saw it, he snapped his fingers and he said... Oh, that's Little Bit. I killed her. And he named every detail of the case and admitted to strangling her from behind. And they learned that he called her Little Bit because she had a tattoo on her shoulder that said Little Bit.
0: Oh my god. Obviously, Little Bit meant something to her for her to get it tattooed on her body. And for that to become what this killer is calling her and remembering her as, that's just sick. I mean, that's like, that's, yeah. I mean, if you had a tattoo that said baby and a serial killer is calling you baby while they're doing these things to you, like, oh my God.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, all of this is horrible and creepy, but that just takes the creepiness up. Because maybe, I don't know, someone in her family had called her little bit You know, maybe that was her grandma's nickname for her or something. The investigator said that Williams was a psychopath. Sounds like it. Explain, And he even mentioned that how he went and showered and ate while Casey's body was just sitting in his truck. So in 2013, Williams was charged with the murder of Casey Pipestem, but he's also been implicated in another 14 murders of women and has admitted to murdering 30 more.
0: Oh my gosh. And this is all because his aunt basically was like, hey, he said this.
1: It's because Casey's murder case went to Terry Turner's desk and she found these similarities and had this, I don't know, convention, basically, that it got the attention of America's Most Wanted and was seen by the aunt.
0: Right. But I'm just saying, like, the aunt making that phone call and them confronting him is when he was just all of a sudden like, okay, actually, I did a shit ton. Here you go. Yeah. And this all was because of. The case that originally fell on Terry's desk, which wasn't this one. So it's like she was looking for one killer yet found another and uncovered all of these. But we still have some open cases, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Well,
0: this is your case within the case.
1: Exactly. Yeah, we'll we'll get back to Nashville soon. But the man who pimped and exploited Casey was also caught and charged and is serving time in federal prison. And one thing to note that just shows how much of a fucking monster that guy is, one of the other girls he was exploiting was just 13 years old.
0: No, that is ridiculous. That should... That, how yeah. How is that okay? Even in the pimp's mind, how is that okay? Oh, well, I guess to him it's just money, so...
1: It's so fucked up. Because I 100% am totally all about sex workers being able to take ownership of their bodies of their career if you know if that's something that they're willingly like wanting to do if that's then absolutely i think something where it was legalized and brought more mainstream and became something that could be regulated possibly really cut down on sex trafficking like this i mean if it was just seen as like a job because You're literally just using skills you have to make money, but oh, it's sex and sex is scary. We don't want to think about that. Let's make it illegal. Well, you know, then people can take advantage of that system uh and exploit people.
0: Well, and when you think about it in comparison to like the porn industry, essentially people are doing the same thing. It's just being filmed. I mean, yes, it is a little bit different, but Mm -hmm. because they're in a studio and it's being filmed, that's a job. But when someone is a sex worker and is doing the same thing it's just not being filmed, then it's not looked at as a job like it's not it's the same thing but but sex exactly. makes it taboo
1: that's that's a perfect example because like you look at the porn industry and it definitely has its problems uh in certain areas, but it's something that's regulated. it is so much safer and it's not you know this seedy. Creepy, you know, when you think of the 70s kind of porn industry where it's like, oh, let's rent this gross-ass motel and do it secretly. Exactly. So, back to Nashville. A few weeks after Sarah Holbert's murder, Postiglione and Freeman arrange to meet at the TA and go through these credit card receipts that they had been pulling earlier. Postiglione's driving over to meet his partner, and he notices a yellow truck with a white trailer Ooh. that's cruising down Cohen Street.
0: Like the one in the surveillance.
1: Just like that one. So he decides to start following it. And the truck passes the last place that Holbert was seen alive. And then it enters the TA and parks. So Postiglione radios Freeman. He's like, yo, this is where I am. I'm going to approach this truck. He goes over to it, knocks on the door, and after a few minutes, this heavy man with stringy brown hair and glasses opens up the door, and it's like, what? And Postiglione tells this guy, you know, he's working on a murder investigation, and I want to see your license, so trucker hands it over. And this is Bruce Mendenhall. He then notices what looks like these blood spots on the inside of the cab door, And on Mendenhall's thumb. Oh my god. He's a detective. It's a job not to jump to conclusions. So he tells Mendenhall police are just asking drivers of yellow cows with white trailers to give some volunteer DNA samples. And Mendenhall's like, sure, okay, whatever. Freeman then gets there at this point, and he pulls out this consent form. He's like, oh, (laughs) right here, please sign. So Mendenhall comes out of the truck to sign it. And as he did, Postiglioni takes a look inside the cab. And, you know, he asks Mendenhall, like, oh, can I take a look? And Mendenhall's just like, are you going to tear it up? He's like, no, I just I, I just want to look around. I'm a cop.
0: Also, Mendenhall sounds like he's trying to do this, like, nonchalant thing. Or that he's just stupid. For the, they're like, we want a DNA sample and to look around your truck. And he's like, okay. Instead of, like, where's your warrant? I think
1: both. <laughs> I think, honestly, he's dumb enough that he's deluded himself that if he's like, sure, I don't have anything to hide, they'd be like, you know what? We don't actually need that. We we're You're right. Yeah. Bye.
0: He's stupid.
1: Or he knows he's caught. I don't know. He
0: either is stupid or knows he's caught and there's no use. So he's like, sure, go ahead. And maybe there's going to be the slim chance that I don't get caught with this.
1: So Postiglione climbs into the cab and nearby he sees a pair of black shoes. He picks them up and the The sole of them, the bottom, looks a lot like the cast that was made from the shoe tread they found near Sarah's body. Because you know, all they found, evidence-wise, really was like the shoes and the grainy video yeah. footage, or the the shoe tracks and the grainy yes. video footage. So he sees these shoes, and he's like, "That footprint looks similar." And then he also sees a garbage bag near the bed that's in the in the back of the truck yeah. thing-a-thing. And so he pulls it over, and it's filled with paper towels, women's clothing, shoes, and a woman's identification. All of this belongs to a missing woman from Indianapolis, and all of it is soaked in blood.
0: Okay, that's a pretty incriminating bag of evidence that literally he's like, yeah, go search my truck and see what you find. There's a giant bag of bloody clothes.
1: Right? Like, dude,
0: He clearly had just given up.
1: I th- I think so. But I also think that, I don't know, it just seems the type of person that if he'd fully given up, he'd be like, all right, guys, there's a bag of bloody clothing in the, in no, the no. truck. No, no, Like, he would have, like, given up, given up. Don't I don't think don't he
0: cares enough to even say that. He's just like, sure.
1: Fair. So, Pastiglione asks about all of this, and uh, Mendenhall's like, oh, yeah, I cut my leg. That's why the bloody paper towels are there. And then... He's like, okay, well, let me let me see your leg. Exactly. There's I was no about to say, point. they're
0: going to ask to see the leg. Like, what a stupid liar.
1: So Mendenhall is then like, oh, um, well, I didn't cut my leg, but I had this girl from Indianapolis. She was in the truck. She was like hitchhiking or whatever. And she'd cut herself. So that's what it's from. And that's why that's all her stuff. And then is like, okay, well, why do you have like all this women's clothing in your truck? And he's like, oh, well, like my wife and daughter had some clothes in my in my truck. Which one, why the fuck would your wife or daughter have clothes in your work vehicle? That's fucking weird. You're not parking your semi like in the driveway <laughs> when you go no. home. So yeah, Postiglione is also not buying that. He's like, mm, cool story, but that's a lie. Yep. Cause there's a lot of blood in this bag. And later DNA testing would show that it, the blood belonged to five different Oh women,
0: my god!
1: All of whom were missing or dead.
0: So this was his, like, grab bag of victims' items.
1: So Mendenhall was taken into custody, and police cataloged more than 300 items from his truck. These included a rifle, knives, handcuffs, latex gloves, several weapons cartridges black tape, a nightstick, and sex toys. Oh
0: my god, what's a nightstick?
1: Like uh, the thing you beat people with. Oh
0: my god. That like
1: police have, like yeah. baton? Is I that the, know. yeah, that's the word
0: for it. There's a lot that he had in that truck. That, right? There must. Like,
1: bitch, clean out well, your there car. There must have
0: been a lot that was right out in the open. If that's how much was in there. like yeah.
1: 300 yeah. items.
0: Clearly things were visible. Yeah.
1: His victims were primarily young sex workers, and usually they'd been found shot, but detectives did determine that his method of killing had evolved and changed over the years. During questioning, though, he implicated himself in the shooting of Sarah Holbert, and he also implicated himself in the shooting of Samantha Winters. Her body was found June 6th of 2007, so 20 days before sarah's body and she was the one whose body was found in the trash can in lebanon tennessee which
0: is just so disrespectful i still can't get over that she was put into a trash can like that's i mean are we talking like the trash can that's like right outside the door that's just like right there or is this like a dumpster in the back or we don't know
1: i'm thinking like one of the trash cans like By the trucker gas pumps kind of thing. Yeah,
0: that's what I was picturing as well. And that's so...
1: Because it said she was, like, folded and, like, kind of, like, butt first. So I I think it was one of those.
0: That's so disgraceful.
1: Yeah. To throw someone away. I mean, anywhere,
0: even if it had been a dumpster. But the fact that you're, like, folding them up to fit into this space where a human body is never meant to be.
1: No. Another victim had been killed on July 11th of 2007, so two weeks after Sarah's murder, at a Flying J truck stop on I-465 in Indianapolis. And this victim was Karma Papura, who was a 31-year-old mother of two who'd last been seen at a Southside Indianapolis truck stop on April 10th of 2008. Mendenhall was charged with murder in this case because DNA tests linked a large quantity of the blood from his truck cab with her parents. So using kind of familial DNA. Investigators also found her cell phone, ATM card, and clothing that she wore was wearing the day she disappeared in his truck. Four years later, so in 2011... Mm -hmm. Her body was found just off of I-65 in Kentucky. Oh my god. So that's kind of why they had to match the blood in his truck with her right. parents. Because they just knew she was missing. And they didn't have her body yet. Yeah. On July 28th, police in Birmingham, Alabama charged Mendenhall with the murder of Lucille Gretna Carter, who'd been found naked in a trash bin with a plastic bag taped around her head just earlier that month on July 1st. And she'd been shot with a twenty two caliber weapon. So using the VCAP, the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, authorities, including Terry Turner, were able to match his MO to several other unsolved murders around the country. Investigators said that though he was initially cooperative, he stopped implicating himself in other murders. He was like, I'm done talking, I'm out. And so police are currently still investing in the possibility that he's responsible for other murders in the area, um, including that of Deborah Ann Glover, who was a sex worker in Atlanta and her body was found near Motel 6 in Suwanee, Georgia on January 29th of 2007. They know that he was in Georgia on the day that she right. was killed. Another one they've linked him to is that of Sherry Dinkard, who's a sex worker from Gary, Indiana, whose body was found naked in a snow embankment. Tammy Zawicki, who was a student found stabbed to death on September 2nd of 1992.
0: Wow. Yeah, a a lot earlier.
1: She had vanished from I-80 near LaSalle, Illinois, nine days earlier after dropping off her brother at Northwestern University. There's Robin Bishop, who is a sex worker who was run over at a Flying J truck stop near I-40 in Fairview, Tennessee on July 1st, 2007. So if that's the case, then he may have murdered Robin Bishop on the same day or just before he was in Alabama and murdered Lucille Gretna Carter. Jeez. Another murder that he's possibly linked to is that of Belinda Cartwright, who's a hitchhiker who was also run over at a truck stop in Georgia in 2001. A composite police sketch they made of the suspect based on witness testimony was very similar to Mendenhall. And like, it looked just like him. And he was also
0: in the area at the time. That's pretty incriminating. Although, I mean, eyewitness... Not that reliable, but he sounds like someone that if you saw him, you'd remember him, and that sounds like a unique look.
1: So, while Mendenhall is on jail, you know, after he's been um, charged with these crimes, he's in jail, and his wife died of natural causes, and because of that, he came across some life insurance money. He separately approached two different inmates and offered to pay them $15,000 to murder three witnesses in his trial. And he said one of these murders needed to be a copycat murder um, to, you know, the, the trucker ones, so that police would think that the killer was still at large. So
0: wait, did these inmates, like, shortly get out and were able to do this?
1: I think so. Yeah, he, w- he was in jail at this time, not yet. Okay, okay,
0: so they were just there for a bit, and they're just like, fuck Yeah.
1: Uh, no. They were like, um, guards, this bitch is crazy. Let me tell you what he wants us to do. Because. I'm imagining he's telling people that are in there for, like, a DUI. Not that a DUI isn't a very serious thing, but, like, people that are not also in there for murder. Who are like, uh, yeah, no, I'm not gonna murder some people for you. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, and that's, I'm so glad to hear that because I feel like. There are oftentimes, I, this is one of those things that a prisoner asks one prisoner to do something and it goes one of two ways. Either they're yeah. like, uh, fuck you, I'm telling on you because this may help me out, or fuck yeah, I'm here for the thrill.
1: I'm telling on you. Okay, whatever. Like they're chill. That
0: is literally what it is, though.
1: No, I agree. I agree. So for the crime of conspiracy to commit murder, so asking and b- trying to bribe these guys to murder witnesses in his trial he was convicted and sentenced to 30 years in prison and then in 2010 he was convicted in sarah holbert's murder and was sentenced to life in prison currently he's still under investigation for murders in georgia illinois new mexico oklahoma and texas so that is the case of the murderer, Bruce Mendenhall, with a uh, little side jaunt into the murderer, John Robert Williams.
0: Okay. Are you ready for post-mortem?
1: I am. So I think your case is uh, the winner of this episode, uh, is, is the most intense one. I think the the torture in your case, to, to me, there's nothing darker or more horrible than torture right. because... Just at its core, it's these horrible, brutal things that just continue. At some level, although it's still fucked up and awful, getting killed, dying, it is quick. But being tortured, I mean, by nature, it, it's, it's just drug out. It's like being killed over the course of weeks or months, and the fact that Your case involved so many people that it had this documentation. The fact that we can see Regina's final moments and, you know, see them after knowing she's been tortured for so long. It's horrifying and heartbreaking and just disgusting. Well,
0: and I will say I agree with you. Like, the fact that he's only been convicted of three murders and he was originally convicted of one. And then he confessed yeah. to two 20 years later, but we know he did so many more than that. I mean, I went over at least three different women who were close calls. So obviously, like that's showing there were so many more. And that fact that we know there are so many missing women whose kidnappings and murders that they haven't been able to seek justice and that their families are still wondering. Like, I think that's what takes this over the edge. I mean, both of our cases were obviously horrific and yours, you know, they were looking for one person ended up finding two separate, uh, which just adds to the horror of trucker serial killers. But I do think because of the numbers and the mystery in mine. It was the Martens. And the yeah. torture.
1: Yeah. I mean, the torture is the big thing for me. And honestly, I think one of the horrifying things about both of our cases is the fact that we really only know they were serial killers because of how many they confessed yeah. to. You know, again, because of the nature of their jobs, them traveling all over, there were victims spread across the country who it's difficult to link to them. I know. And we know these victims are them because we have a lot of confessions. And because, you know, thankfully in a couple of mine, we have some DNA evidence. But, you know, the reason that in mine, you know, they've been convicted of one murder and in yours it was originally one and now three, but we just know it's more because of confessions is horrifying. It
0: is. Think about the fact that... So, another serial killer that murdered in multiple different states, Ted Bundy. Think about if Ted Bundy had been a truck driver. Oh, dear God. He may have never been caught. The reasons he was caught, like, he was always caught on, like, traffic violations. But he was, like, they, they were looking into him in one place. He went to another. He was arrested. Like, he escaped prison. Then went somewhere else and had another name. Like, he had a path.
1: No, I mean, had he been a truck driver and been just a part of his life is traveling across the country, wouldn't have happened? Exactly.
0: And that's what makes this so scary is when you take some of the world's most terrifying serial killers, put them in the lens of a truck driver, and that shows you how horrifying these serial killers really are. We just don't really know about them because of the nature of their job. But um, yeah, this is terrifying and it is yeah okay well you can pick the topic again it's about time i'm just saying i did this for a while yeah you know
1: that's that's true you did (laughs) you did you very much but
0: um if you enjoyed this episode be sure to rate and review us on apple Podcasts. give us those five stars let us know what you thought and we greatly appreciate it your reviews help us and we love reading them
1: yes we do Also, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Make sure to check out our website. Check out our merch store. We have some pretty amazing t-shirts and tank tops and bags and all that shit. Get your Blood & Wine needs. They pretty fucking cool. But with that, this is Blood & Wine signing off.
0: XOXO. Bye, you guys.
1: Bye.